think. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, we have General Mick Ryan up. Thanks so much for being here. We've got CJ, just so you know, our Ranger Artie friend and, uh, and our, our, our regular host. So welcome uh, back, uh, General Ryan. Thanks, mate. It's great to be back with you again. It's uh, a beautiful, sunny morning here. The waves are rolling in at the beach, and um, it's, a, it's a pleasant way to start the day by talking with you all. Excellent. And for those who aren't aware, being on the wrong side of the planet, it's almost midsummer in Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, summer starts in about a month, so one December. Uh, yeah. But where I live, it's pretty much summer all year round. So... Uh, we're not, all not a big. <laughs> no, it's great to be yeah. with you all again, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, to come back. As a bunch of us have gotten together, just so you know, um, Rip really wanted to give a lot of attention to the heroes of Ukraine. People are helping make things go, and and. Um, and one of the things he just came up, that's why I messaged you today about it, because he had just come up and uh, wants to build a network of like-minded people. It's not for everyone, because especially if it's not your wheelhouse, but that's what I was actually uh, trying to get at. Uh, so that I just wanted to add color to our, our previous message offline. Sure. Um, we're doing, yeah, we're doing some great work, some advisory boards, just people, you know, uh, talking about how to, how to interact how to make it all work well and uh, and kind of best practices for everyone involved. So I don't know your, uh, your level of, a, you know, interest in that world, but thought it'd be interesting to share. So just wanted to explain that it's better than typing. Yeah. No, no. Thank you very much for that. I'll, uh, I'll have a look at that once you send through the documents. Yeah, no worries. I'll just, if you have a, if, it, if you flip an email that I can use, then I'll just send you what I've been sending. And also, um, there's no secret. One of the things that's really awesome, it's good to get like big names as well, people who are respected and trusted. And I was sharing this with the audience earlier. Um, some big universities uh, have asked us to kind of spearhead uh, with some interest from us initially, a uh, digital, digitalized map of Ukraine to track everything from damaged roads, infrastructure, war crimes, all that jazz. And it's a huge, huge endeavor. So I've actually, I dialed in uh, Alex Vinman, Colonel Vinman, and Rip Rawlings. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile cause. And some good stuff's being done just by people in the space. So without further ado, I mean, there's so much going on right now. And I know I know uh, Chuck Fair wants to pop on and chat with you, if you don't mind. Yeah, but, um, I love Chuck's stuff. Yeah, Chuck's great. Um, so one of the interesting things we're getting, uh, and it's more of a tactical I don't know if you want to dig into there, but things like, you know, ready-made perhaps mausoleums for Russians, uh, concrete pillboxes showing up everywhere, um, defensive lines being built uh, north of Kherson City where those MSRs come down, and then to the southwest uh, looks like a perhaps a covering force battle intended uh, by the Russians to help evacuate, and the um, the general disposition of Russian forces along the front. So I'm just wondering if there's you know, we don't have to repeat because we've spoken about it at length today. You probably know the situation, and so do most of the listeners. What do you think this means? Kherson, um, obviously, it's a symbolic, you know, only 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 capital of any oblast captured by the Russians, relatively intact. And now it seems like they're getting ready to say goodbye. What do you think? Mm. Well, I think if we if we look at the the higher level, Surovkin has clearly got some big decisions to make about it how much ground he can hold over winter. Clearly, the Russians 
uh, strategy for the next few months is to hold on to what they've got. It's, it's a more defensive strategy. They're really not capable of offensive operations anywhere. Um, even Wagner Group uh, around Bakhmut and the other areas is having a lot of trouble advancing 100 metres a day. So now this is all about, I think, Srovkin's plan to consolidate uh, his forces to where they can realistically hold ground whilst they can currently undertake what is probably going to be a fairly significant relief in place of both individuals and units over the coming months so that they're well postured uh, early next year to resume some kind of offensive operations. I'm, I'm sure they aspire to that. Um, it will be also not just about the territory they can hold, but uh, what logistic networks they can both re-establish and harden uh, for the winter, but also to stockpile uh, for winter and for uh, for next year. So, you know, I think what we're seeing in Kherson, which I think Michael Kaufman described as clear as mud, and I think that's about right. Um, I think that's kind of Sorovkin's larger consolidation plan. Now, whether they're going to stay and fight or not, I'm not sure. I mean, this seems to me to be a plan to not withdraw without cost to the Ukrainians. So I think they may potentially withdraw, but they want to do it at some cost to the Ukrainians. They don't want to make it easy. And I mean, I, we can understand that as soldiers, right? You never make things easy for the enemy. Um, so that's kind of my sense of where we're at in Kherson at the moment. Um, you know, they've done a lot of preparation on primary and secondary defensive uh, positions in the northern part. Uh, you know, it's really hard to see into the mind of you know, Russian commanders at any time. But at the moment, I think, you know, they're, they're playing a bit of a game with the Ukrainians and trying to one-up the Ukrainians in their deception and operational security. Hmm. So here's a weird one. I'm not sure if you had this question asked, but... It was it was perplexing me. Um, what what made this uh, what what made ISIS? I'm I'm making a few assumptions here. The assumption is the new Russian commander uh, is withdrawing from Kherson. What if that's the case? Why is Putin listening to him now? I can't imagine he was the first general. I hope he wasn't the first general that said, "Hey, uh, that's not a good idea. Let's not reinforce failure." Um, do you think that this is this general saying to Putin, "Hey"? We could get this back later, but we need to get out of Dodge right now. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, but they could potentially have a narrative that they're not abandoning Kherson. Um, you know, there's there's more, uh, if my geography's right, there's more of Kherson Oblast on the other side of the Dnieper, on the, on the eastern side. So, um, and the Dnieper is a very significant obstacle to cross if you want to go and conduct offensive operations, say, from the Ukrainian perspective. So, you know, potentially what he's been able to say is, hey, we've lost some of Luhansk, but we haven't given it up. Uh, we may lose some of Kherson, but we're not going to lose all of it, which is in prospect if they don't uh, have some kind of withdrawal of what are the best of their remaining forces on the western bank of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, yeah, that, 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 would, that would still allow them to hold part of it. So with regards to uh, this uh, possible uh, withdrawal in Kherson, uh, we, you've, seen, you've seen the pillboxes. It's, it's very important. Uh, everyone wants to know what all the experts say. Um, is this to keep warm? Uh, why so many of them? It's a tactical question, but 
Um, any comments about that? Does it just seem like another strange endeavor by the Russians? Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not sure whether this is a local um, initiative or something that's more systemic. I mean, concrete pillboxes uh, are kind of useful when it comes to, you know, low-level counterinsurgency stuff for uh, roadside um, checkpoints and things like that. Um, from what I'm seeing of these concrete constructions, they're not exactly uh, designed to survive anything other than, you know, maybe 5.56 and 7.62, you know, 50 cal looks like it should be able to breach this stuff fairly simply. Um, so, you know, it, it smacks to me of a local civilian governor who wants to be seen to be doing something who wants to be known as someone who's not going to easily give up the province that they're in charge of uh, and is foistering these things on the military. I mean, um, you know, I, I find it hard to conceive why you would want these things because it kind of kind of puts a boat anchor around your ankle as a soldier, right? You're kind of fixed in place. And what the Russians need to be doing is a more mobile defence, not a fixed defence at the moment. But, you know, once again, it's hard to see in the minds of some of these folks. Um, they don't always think like us, uh, like us. And, you know, they do some things sometimes that don't make a lot of sense. Fair enough. The, uh, the last few days have seen horrific numbers of, uh, it depends on who you ask, Russian casualties. We saw over a 1,000... Uh, soldiers, uh, over 200 armored vehicles, including a full tank regiment, destroyed in uh, in the Donbass. There, um, that's uh, followed by another two days of another 1,500. So we're looking at almost a brigade, a Russian-sized brigade of of soldiers dead. Um, implications? Uh, is this is this just conscripts being pushed in? I mean, I've tried. It's hard to explain necessarily to maybe people who aren't in the military. What, what losing 2,500 troops in three days means. Uh, mm. This is almost World War II level stuff. It's not sustainable, I would assume. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of points to be made here. Firstly, we should always be cautious about claimed casualties. Um, you know, the, the sources for casualty numbers we should question. Um, we know from history that uh, generally, the claims on casualties, whether they're humans or tanks or aircraft shot down, are always over the reality. Uh, that's been uh, the historical experience of World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a whole bunch of things. So I would question the level of those casualties, first and foremost. Secondly, um, even if they were half that, which is probably closer to the truth, um, that is still a large number of casualties. It means that, you know, the Ukrainians are putting up a fairly significant fight here. Um, I'm not sure of the source of the casualties, but my sense would be the majority of them are still artillery, not close combat. Um, so what that would mean to me is that the massive asymmetry in artillery and indirect fires that we saw in the Donbass, particularly, you know, April, May, June, has been turned around by the Ukrainians. We may, you know, see some parity or indeed uh, local fire superiority by the Ukrainians, which is causing these casualties. So, I mean, none of this is good news for the Russians, right? 
Uh, it means that they've essentially uh, given away all the advantages that they went into this war with, particularly when it comes to fires uh, and the quality of some of their armoured equipment. Um, and they're back to a point where they're in an inferior position to the Ukrainians, particularly when it comes to things like equipment, when it comes to secure networks, uh, when it comes to air defence and counter-drone technologies. Um, Mobilisation is not going to redress that asymmetry. And indeed, it's an advantage that the Ukrainians, I think, will continue to build throughout winter and early into next year. The, uh, there was a report recently, uh, it, was a, it was a retired British general saying uh, he, he had a lot of respect for the fact that Zelensky didn't um, flinch. He didn't call up a mass mobilization of 16 to 6 year olds, uh, that they were maintaining the country, doing this and that. He figured that was, I, I didn't, I never actually thought of that. I never had considered why that would be important. But as, uh, you know, let's say this war progresses. Do you think uh, on a bigger scale, more um, bigger mobilization than assuming the number that Reznikov said of one million is correct? Do you think that's in the cards? It's one of the questions we've gotten. Yeah, I think, well, I'm not sure who the British person was who said this, but I, I don't think actually that's an accurate statement. The Ukrainians have mobilized. They've just done it in a way without using that language. I mean, they closed the borders to men of, I think, between 18 and 45 Uh, They've called up around 700,000 people, which is much larger than the Russian mobilisation effort. Um, You're starting to see the growth of a a training NATO training regime, you know, uh, which should have been going a long time ago, but we've got it going with the Brits, the Canadians in particular in the UK, um, soon to be joined by the Australians. So the Ukrainians actually have mobilised. They they have mobilised. I think he said uh, yeah. m- limited as opposed to mass. Sorry, just for my. Well, what's that. your definition of mass? I mean, you can't right. call Russian uh, mobilising three hundred thousand mass and Ukrainians mobilising seven hundred thousand not mass. I mean, I think that's a bit disingenuous. So it has been a mass mobilisation, and that's just for police. Um, you know, we haven't seen figures for things like mobilising civil defence organisations. Um, you know, they've certainly mobilised industry and things like that. So I think the Ukrainians have actually mobilised. They've just done it in a clever way using their own and other people's resources. And they've just used different language to describe what we would otherwise know as a a national mobilisation to prevent their extermination as a people and as a state. So it's fair to say the Ukrainians have been muted about it for not to cause probably panic, whereas the Russians are ginning it up because they're doing the exact opposite. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Russians are making a big deal of it now because they don't have any choice. I mean, they tried to um, not talk about it for a long time because it wasn't a war, right? I mean, Putin didn't want the Russian people to know they were actually in a war. It was a special military operation, which should have been over in a week, and uh, it wasn't. So... Now, the Russians mobilised when they had no other option but to do so. Um, You know, if they had done it in April or May, this would have been a very different war we're fighting now, but they didn't. Putin procrastinated. And, um, you know, the mobilisation's probably too late for them. They they don't have the experienced trainers now to really build a force of that size, not in the short or medium term. Um, Fun. Sorry? No, sorry. No, I mean, I, I just think 
you know, the Ukrainians have mobilised and, you know, we, we need to be honest about what's going on here. All the facts say that there has been a mobilisation in Ukraine and they've done it pretty cleverly. Uh, absolutely. No, I, I, the individual just to, I don't want to paraphrase him incorrectly. He was, he, he recognised there's a mobilisation, but I think he was saying there could be five or six million mobilised if they're in that much fear of their existence, they could go all out, but I'm not sure they could even support that. So they probably did as many as they could support now that I think about it. Mm. Uh, 700,000. Fun fact, Putin just made a speech yesterday where he's ordered the Russian military to modernize. I thought that was funny. Uh, Maybe a little late, perhaps. Um, And he was demanding that uh, companies compete with one another to provide uh, the Russian military with all sorts of stuff. Anyways, it was was just a fun point. Um, But there's a question. It's a general level question here. Um, And the, the assumptions are that the majority of Russian forces in Kherson and Zaporizhia are in are west of the Dnipro, if there is a surrender or some type of strategic defeat of Russian forces, is it um, not a cakewalk, but is it, but is it relatively uh, a, a, scop, a, a hop, skip and a jump for the Ukrainians uh, across to Melitopol? Uh, it is a pretty big open stretch of, it's open terrain pretty much, uh, but uh, some people have been asking, is there, is there a defense in depth? Um, does this mean the collapse of Russian forces in the south? Do they leave for Mariupol or Crimea? Um, is there anything that you could speak to about that? Is something that you feel confident saying? I mean, I know you're not a Russian general. No, and uh, I don't want to uh, forecast a good battlefield <laughs> uh, campaigning <laughs> either. Um, you know, I, I think they will want to hold, if they do cross the Dnieper, they'll want to hold the eastern parts of Kherson. They have to, by, by law. Uh, at least Russian law, and I'm sure by direction from uh, from Putin. Um, you know, uh, Zaporizhia is an important province for them. You know, it's a kind of link province between Kherson and uh, further to the east. It also contains important um, resources as well as important power generation capacity. Uh, Mariupol and Melitopol are two significant cities they won't want to give them up. But at the same time, um, I would have thought they'll be two cities that are important campaign objectives to the Ukrainians in, in the in the near term. There's one last question. We'll open up to some questions from the panel there. Uh, we can look at Kharkiv as a, a front, uh, Donbass and then Kherson. There's a big front that we've never been talking about because not much has been going on uh, there, and that's Zaporizhia. So those mm. are the forces... You know, uh, some people say there might be very large numbers of Ukrainian forces somewhere back from there, and there's only about three or four uh, motorized, silly named brigades uh, of Russians on the Russian side. There is that. Is that something that you know, pe- you know, people sometimes look at that and go, "Hey, how come nothing's going on there?" Like, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking maybe that's maybe that's for a push south once the Ukrainians get you know try to establish a bridgehead on the east bank of the Dnipro. Why is it static? Both sides aren't doing anything. Is that weird to you, or is no one? No, it, it, no, no, it, it is. Uh, I, you know, I've been looking at that uh, as a potential axis for some time, but I'm sure a lot of people have. I mean, I think uh, Russian strength there is probably greater than we appreciate. I think the Ukrainians would have exploited that before now. I mean, they're very good. They're very good op- battlefield opportunists, as we saw in the north. My sense is they probably would have exploited that if the Russian forces there were as weak as we think and if they had sufficient operational and strategic reserves to exploit it. So it could well be the Russians are stronger there than we think. 
Uh, it could well be that um, the Ukrainians don't have sufficient reserves and sufficient stockpiles to advance in there. But the other thing too is, remember, if, if you do advance on that axis south, uh, you've got Russians on both sides. And, yeah. you know, we know as soldiers, you've got to hold open your breach. You, you know, all the way south, you're going to have to have forces that are holding open the shoulders of that axis of advance. And that would take a fairly significant number of troops. Whereas, you know, if you're advancing from Kherson and even up in the north there, they didn't have to do that to the same degree. So, you know, it would be pretty expensive in the number of forces required. Not that it's not a great idea. Absolutely it is. But that's kind of how I look at it, um, you know, in why they may not have done it yet. doesn't mean they may not do it, but, you know, I think it's a fairly uh, complex operation to undertake. Yeah, I know that makes sense. I mean, if you look at it from the Ukrainians' perspective, if they were to push south from from Zaporizhia there, to their left or the north flank would be Russian forces in Donbass, and to their west, to their right, or their, the west of them would be obviously the rear of the Russian forces in Kherson. So if you're in your enemy's rear, they're in yours. So I would assume that one of those flanks would have to give before they push forward there. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be uh, it'd be pretty tough fight, actually, uh, and very easy to get cut off uh, by the Russians. Uh, and remember, that entire axis would be um, inside the radius of pretty much a huge amount of Russian artillery as well. So, you know, I think at the moment... Um, they'll be chipping away from the edges rather than uh, trying to advance and penetrate into the guts of the Russian defensive regime at the moment. Okay, great. There's just, I'm going to be greedy and ask one more general question. Yeah, uh, sure. Let's say, let's say Harrison falls, whatever, uh, surrender, destroyed in place, a bunch scatter. Does that, does that force of Ukrainians west of the Dnieper, is that bridging, are they bridging the Dnieper at that point or are they just holding it and then, attacking from Zaporizhia. I mean, it just, you know, is it possible? Sure. You know, imagine they spend another few months enabling operations, you know, conducting fire missions on the, on the Russians east of the Dnieper to push them back away so they can conduct some kind of bridging, or is that, pardon the expression, a bridge too far? Um, I think this would have to be quite a deliberate operation to cross the Dnieper and then go into the eastern part of Kherson. I mean, the Russians have had a long time to think about this. I mean, they're not total idiots and they have demonstrated some capacity to learn. Uh, and they have defended, you know, the West Bank of Kherson for a long time now, um, albeit with some of their best forces, you know, armour, uh, parachute uh, forces and the like. Um, so my sense is, you know, if the Ukrainians could take the West Bank of the Dnieper uh, before Christmas, that would be a pretty good outcome because it would probably include Kherson City, which is a significant political objective. Uh, but getting across the Dnieper, um, sustaining supply lines across the Dnieper would be a really large operation, would take a lot of combat units, a lot of support units, a lot of air defence, a lot of air force. Um, I, my sense is that's the kind of thing that once you take the West, you'd start stockpiling and planning for and conduct at some other point. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether the Dnieper freezes in winter. I, I don't have that kind of geographical familiarity. Uh, my sense is uh, it may not. 
so, you know, they're going to have to bridge it. It's not the kind of thing you can just run people across in winter like the Chinese did across the Yalu at one point in the Korean War. Um, so I think the West, West East Bank is, is a different operation. It's not a different phase of one operation. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, let's grab uh, M, uh, the Shades of the Pyramids. There's a question for you then, CJ. Go ahead, M. Thank you, Yehuda. The Pyramids say hi. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Um, G'day, mate. Um, you, you tweeted a, a very informative uh, thread about the theory of victory, the Russian theory of victory, uh, the elusive one, per se, and the, the shape-shifting nature of it, and uh, they're changing policies, uh, sorry, they're changing strategies in order to try to achieve uh, mm. that uh, ever-changing theory of victory. Now that they are uh, moving away uh, deeper into Kherson, away from the river, and one of the pillars of the strategies, uh, as you define them, is hitting population centers and civilian infrastructure to try again to force a political capitulation in Kiev or scare the population or break their morale. Uh, the, the, we haven't seen Kiev evacuated during the first uh, wave of the invasion when Kiev mm. was being attacked along three northern axes. Yep. Uh, but now that winter is coming and there is a uh, obvious uh, degradation in the electrical generation capacity, uh, some people might argue that uh, a new wave of, of Ukrainian refugees might uh, travel to Europe, or, or there will be an influx, another refugee influx. Uh, but I think I think quite the opposite. I think that the Ukrainians will actually, st you know, stand their ground and and try to fix uh, the electrical capacity as, as soon as possible and tolerate uh, whatever hardships they have to go through and, and, and not break down. What are your thoughts on that, sir? Uh, I think you're dead right. I mean, um, you, Kiev has been through worse than this, to be frank. Um, and <laughs> if, if nothing else, the uh, Ukrainians have proved themselves to be not just plucky and inventive, uh, but uh, really tough in putting up with some pretty vicious terror tactics from the Russians. Uh, we're seeing an influx of assistance and commitments of assistance from European organisations to help sustain and repair the power grid. I mean, we've seen some really good commitments from Scandinavian countries, I think in the last 24 hours, even Switzerland has committed $100 million to um, repair and sustain uh, the power grid. You're seeing uh, an influx of various types of air defence and counter drone technologies to protect key nodes in the power grid. So I think, you know, Ukraine's strategy is more to uh, repair it and sustain it and protect it rather than uh, to a wholesale evacuation. I, I can't see that happening. And at the end of the day, uh, what the Ukrainians are doing is repairing it quickly, getting on with life and saying, hey, you can throw all the missiles you want. All you're doing is wasting missiles and wasting money on something that's not uh, resulting in any strategic outcome. So, um, you know, I, I think you're right. I, I think they're going to focus on a repair, sustain, protect kind of strategy for their power water grid uh, over the coming months. Thank you so much, sir. All right, over to CJ, our resident ranger. Thanks, Yehuda. No, I, I, yeah, General Ryan, I, I got to go back to the bridge for a second because you, you sort yeah. of were hinting at it, and I, I just want a bit more info. There's, for other people's awareness, there's not many general officers that were engineers. So 
uh, General Ryan has this <laughs> unique experience of, uh, you know, commanding at both the tactical, operational and, and strategic level. So could you kind of explain just to all of us here, what is like the, the key differences outside of scope and size between, you know, a tactical wet gap crossing? So we've seen plenty of these, right? The Varifka, where there's a brigade sized element trying to, to cross a span of water and what crossing the Dnieper would require, which is at least a division or more. And, and this is significant because as best as I know, other than World War II, this is not something that NATO or any Western country has done uh, in combat or at least in, in near peer combat. So can you kind of explain, sir, what the difference is and what is required for this huge step up in scale? Yeah, no, thank you for that. No, I am a combat engineer, but I commanded a combined arms brigade, so I, I kind of had the best of both worlds. Um, and I've served in an infantry battalion on operations, so I've been fortunate to see all the different elements of it. Um, now, this would be a, at least a core-level operation, uh, you know, multiple brigades um, that would have to undertake a, a deliberate uh, crossing operation that would require a lot of preparation, not just uh, in terms of reconnaissance for the right crossing locations, uh, but also for the right exit locations. Uh, and if you project forward from that, what are the objectives that those crossing locations would be supporting on the other side of the river? So you start with the objectives on the far bank and then you work back from there. Um, you know, the rule of thumb for any kind of crossing activity, whether it's a river crossing or an obstacle breach, is two lanes per battalion size organisation plus 50% reserve in either equipment or lanes. So, you know, each brigade you would normally assume, you know, Two, two battalions up, one in reserve is kind of how we all think. So each brigade crossing would need four crossing points plus reserve. So you're talking about, you know, at least two brigades going over in the first wave. You're talking about a very, very significant crossing activity with large amounts, not just of engineers and bridging activity, but remember in SOSRA, you know, the suppress piece is really important. You need to suppress the enemy capacity to interfere with your crossing sites and the routes to and from those crossing sites. So they're going to have to clear, you know, out to uh, medium artillery range from those crossing sites, either in advance or during the crossing location. I mean, it's an incredibly complex activity. It's a core level, not a divisional level activity in, in my view. Um, and this is the kind of thing you just can't do in stride. It's a deliberate activity that you have to plan for quite some time. Um, you know, the Ukrainians have been very clear, are very good at keeping their cards close to their chest, are very good at operational security. But, you know, I would be extraordinarily surprised if a team hadn't been planning this activity for months already. All right. Any follow-up there, CJ? Uh, just real quickly, uh, sir, you know, we saw in the past two days the Russians have uh, made a very deliberate effort to destroy as many boats, uh, mainly civilian boats, as possible. <laughs> I was sort of, yeah. I was sort of hoping that these could be used in some capacity, at least to carry light infantry across. I mean, do they really need a large barge fleet already, or do they need, you know, more military-grade equipment to, to make this happen? Because of course, it's a gigantic operation. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it'll be a mix of bridges and ferries. Um, and, you know, you can see that pontoon bridge uh, that they've they've already constructed. I mean, that that's made up, you know, it's the Russian PMP, what we would call a, a floating support bridge. 
you can use it to create either a floating bridge or use sections of it with engineer boats to uh, create uh, ferries that go back and forth and you make a judgment on what's the fastest way to get across, get large forces across, whether you use either. Uh, my sense is it'll be a mix of, you know, there initially lots of small boats, then larger boats, then ferries, and then bridges uh, will be all in the mix. I, I don't think it'll be a, a single type. And then at the same time, my sense is as soon as they can ensure that existing civilian bridges are outside Russian artillery range, they'll be repairing them because that's the most effective way to cross water is a large <laughs> class 100 uh, civilian bridge. Would that be like the Antonovsky Bridge? That's the one. Amazing. Uh, all right. Well, back to sorry, Daryl, and then M. Good evening, General. Good evening. Um, um, my question has to be: with the Russians using the tetrahedra, uh, their trenches, and all these World War II type defenses. Um, measures with the advent of the uh, drone um, and other uh, high-tech uh, hardware that's available. What do you see now as the best defense for a um, infantry soldier at this point? Because the traditional methods uh, no longer seem adequate. Um, the thing with military institutions is they never throw away old ideas. They may not use them for a while, but they're always in the cupboard ready to come out. Um, you know, trench warfare has been going on in the east of Ukraine for eight years and eight months, not just eight months. Uh, it's extraordinarily effective if you only have dismounted forces uh, to, you know, help them hold ground, help them defend uh, ground and to protect them from indirect fire. Um, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, you know, the West has not provided the quantities of IFEs, APCs, tanks and other armoured vehicles that they can conduct entirely mobile defence operations. They, they're clearly the best ways of doing it. Uh, but at the end of the day, both sides uh, have huge numbers of dismounted troops um, who can only move at a certain pace and, you know, trenches... Um, uh, other defensive positions with machine guns, mortars, these kind of weapons are very effective against an advancing dismounted organisation, which the Russians are a lot of the time. Um, I think we're going to continue seeing that in certain parts of Ukraine, uh, particularly areas that neither side deem their main effort, you know, where their economy of force missions or, or secondary efforts, we're probably going to continue to see these. Um, and they will throw their armour, what armour they have, at their, their main effort to both break into defensive uh, schemes, uh, defensive um, um, positions, uh, and then break through and then exploit. I mean, exploitation by armoured vehicles is a great way of exploiting, and it's certainly the best way to kill as many enemy troops as possible. So we're going to continue to see trenches. We're going to continue to see defensive positions that, you know, people say, oh, it reminds me of World War One. Well, it might, but trench warfare has been around at least since, you know, the US Civil War, and it's going to be around for a long time to come, I think. I hope that answers the question. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I did not know that you're an officer of engineers. 
Uh, oh, I'm a combat engineer, mate. A very proud one. I see. I see. Well, uh, I actually have an exam on Sunday. Um, so <laughs> Sorry, I, mate. You're going to have to take it. I can't say it for you. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm just curious, totally related to the space. Uh, on the brigade level, what differentiates close support tasks, mobility, countermobility, survivability from general support tasks from the engineering support regiment? Uh, as the brigade commander, uh, could you see some of tasks be considered for either close support or general support? And give examples. I'm just curious if you could answer that yeah. for me. It's not for. Uh, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, happy. Yeah, no, happy to do that. I mean, in an Australian. <laughs> That's actually my question uh, for my course. Well, in an Australian, <laughs> in Australian combat brigade, um, it's made up. They're fairly standard: uh, two infantry battalions, an armour battalion, an artillery battalion, an engineer battalion, a logistics battalion, and a combat uh, combat signals regiment. In your uh, engineer regiment, you normally have two combat engineer squadrons that do the close combat engineering support to, you know, those who undertake close combat, which is infantry and uh, armour. But you also have a support squadron, which does the more general support, you know, roads, water, survivability um, kind of tasks. Um in the close support, you've obviously got things like uh, obstacle reduction um, and other close support task demolitions in 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 the uh, withdrawal, those kind of things. We're making a fairly significant recapitalisation of our combat engineers at the moment. We're getting a lot of uh, armoured breach equipment, buying a lot of lot more bridges, armoured bridges, mobile mobile bridges. Um, replacing uh, all the vehicles for our floating support bridge. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of... And we've just formed another couple of engineer regiments for the Army as well. One's a support one, uh, but also a couple of reserve ones. So we're recapitalising our ability to ensure the mobility, counter-mobility and survivability missions that are at the heart of what combat engineers do. All right. Well, that was literally one of my questions, so I'm going to keep um, going because uh, I hope that helps. One. It does help. <laughs> what, um, what, how, in what way does the close support, the engineering element close support, um, advise the CO of the engineering regiment or battalion there, uh, in in their work in the rear, especially, you know, like compared to obviously the general support they're doing versus the close support. So, how, you know, I understand how. The close support is assisted the other way around, but what's the what's the what's the what's the return? Sorry, so you're talking about what's the support engineering functions? So we know the support engineering functions, but I, I was reading once that uh, actually in relation to this engineering uh, tooth, um, that the close support elements do provide feedback and information that assist in the planning on the general support level. Does that mean letting general support staff know? Uh, what what's required for the next tactical bound, or is it immediate needs? How does that work? Yeah, no. Uh, the you know really important function on the battlefield is engineer reconnaissance. Um, you know the recon battle isn't just about cavalry units you know fighting each other for information with information and to deny each other information. You know engineer reconnaissance parties are always in your vanguard uh, when you're in the advance because. Uh, they provide information on terrain, which is really important to understand. Um, you know, uh, it's something that only uh, army people really, really appreciate. Terrain is 
and understanding the terrain and going is vital. Um, the engineer reconnaissance also provides information on routes and their capacity, bridges and their capacity, obstacles and their composition, you know, whether they're man-made or uh, natural or a combination of both. And that's all fed back, you know, and they also provide information on the kind of enemy weapon systems they're, they're seeing and munitions and, and those kind of things. That's all fed back uh, to the brigade division level. And then that informs... Uh, the allocation of engineer in both the close and general support missions. It informs the location of bridging parks. It informs the location of units that undertake route construction and maintenance. Um, so it's a fairly complex tableau, you know, where you have people right at the front feeding back information and people right at the back pushing forward uh, engineer support for both the close and the general support roles depending on what the main effort is for the commander. Uh, so, you know, whoever the tactical commander is, is the one who drives priorities and engineers are always on the main effort. You don't have enough to split them evenly. They're always on main effort, maybe a little bit on the secondary effort. So if you find concentrations of engineers on the battlefield, that's one way that you can pick the enemy's main effort. Where you find lots of engineers, you can say this is their main effort you don't use engineers and their equipment in deception because that's just idiotic and I've never actually heard of it. Um, you could do it, but you're just going to piss away all your engineers and, and no smart commander does that. Fair enough. That's great. Uh, just, you know, one more engineering question. Um, in, what, in what ways would you say that uh, battle group engineers, for example, can improve survivability of the battle group? We often think of engineers as bridge builders, uh, but a lot of people don't know what happens uh, as well in addition to that. Sorry, uh, sorry, you broke up there. Oh, uh, where'd you lose me? The, the whole thing? Yeah, right, the whole thing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. I was saying, in what ways can, say, a battle group engineering element improve survivability of the battle group on a whole? Often we think of engineering, uh, like a field squadron, engineering field squadron, as, a, as, as building a bridge or maybe breaching uh, an obstacle. But uh, what, are, what are other ways for uh, in regards to survivability? What did they bring? Well, they, they bring a, a range of function, you know, clearly uh, <laughs> uh, things like route, uh, if they're not building roads, maintaining them. Um, you know, uh, a really important function in a lot of dry places is dust suppression. Uh, people under, you know, I come from a dry, dusty place. If you don't suppress dust, people get sick and your computers don't work. So that's, that's, that's an important function. Um, water supply. Um, sometimes you've got to win water locally. Engineers do that for you. Um, but they also bring trades like carpenters, electricians, plumbers that can support local communities, which is pretty important, even in, in high-level warfighting. Um, and, you know, construction, you know, if, if you have commanders that want to have berms around uh, important logistics or, or fires locations, they'll, they'll do those kind of survivability missions as well. So there's a range of different things they can do. And then obviously engineers can do uh, use uh, local contractors for a range of functions as well. So, you know, um, we're pretty flexible, um, you know, and, and I think most people in the Army, you know, know and appreciate that, you know, combat engineers are generally the smartest and, and best looking bit parts of any army. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, we're a fairly flexible and adaptable kind of uh, kind of institution. Fair enough. I like to throw when when we get uh, specific <laughs> trades and we like to ask the questions just because 
uh, you know, when I speak on the infantry side, I'm a SIGO now, but I used to be infantry for a long time. People seem to be really interested in the in the minutia, and uh, and we haven't had an well, Colonel Lake's an engineer, as you know, uh, yes, so she's. She yeah, yeah. So we have a great talk there. All right. So last question about engineers is yes or no. Do you guys say Chimo like we do for no reason? Say what? what? Chimo. I have no I idea not. what that is. No. Canadian engineers, <laughs> it's it's instead of hoorah, they say Chimo. I don't know what it means. Uh, I was just curious. Okay. Hmm. No, yeah. we do Chimo. not say that. C-H-I-M-O. <laughs> okay. No but idea. What Yehuda, maybe, Yehuda, maybe we can stay briefly on the adaptation because uh, General Ryan had just highlighted the adaptation um, battle as being key and hmm. as combat engineers are such adaptable human beings maybe that is something which we can touch upon briefly because ukraine seems to be winning that battle right yeah no i think that's a really important uh point I mean, i've written a few articles on this what i call the adaptation battle um it was almost a whole chapter in my book because it's so important um you know, this isn't to say the Russians haven't adapted. I mean, they have. They've adapted strategically to kind of downsize the objectives, to concentrate their combat forces and particularly their artillery. But their adaptation hasn't been as quick or as high quality as the Ukrainians have been. Um, you know, the Ukrainians have demonstrated a level of bottom-up learning and innovation that the Russian army just hasn't demonstrated to the same degree. Um, and in many respects, you know, the um, operation in the North Tree was really a bottom-up driven activity where people identified weaknesses in uh, Russian defences and Russian force dispositions and uh, put forward a plan to uh, go into uh, Kharkiv and Luhansk and, and that was accepted and they did it and did it very well, actually. So, you know, I think the adaptation battle is extraordinarily important. I think we're seeing that now, um, not just on the battlefield, we're seeing it particularly in the use of drones. We're seeing, you know, the Russians have adapted to use larger numbers of drones. The Ukrainians have then adapted to um, thicken and improve their air defence and counter drone capacities. We'll see the Russians adapt around that to use more ballistic missiles rather than slow-moving um, suicide drones. So, you know, this this notion of an adaptation battle, and I had a recent piece in Inglesburg Ideas uh, on this topic, is a really important one, not just in this war, but in, in every war. You know, you the old adapt or die uh, saying, it's a real thing. Um, and soldiers on the battlefield have problems they have to solve every single day, and they are endlessly innovative and adaptive. That's a great uh, answer. I, have, I actually remember the question, which is similar. Remember, I said a great question. I forgot. Um, and then we're going to go to Hans. We're going to go to Colby, Alan, and M. Um, we've been watching Ukrainians uh, pretty, you know, this is general officer level stuff. We, I think I've been watching from the bottom, looking up and seeing enabling operations, shaping operations. Then you see the deep, the deep battle with these deep fires that are hitting, you know, these, these supply and, re, and resupply uh, hubs. Um, and then we see a counteroffensive kickoff. Is the trigger, whatever the trigger is that the Ukrainians decide, when, when, the, when we see a lull maybe in, in the deep battle, is that, is that, I'm not trying to say give away the secrets here, but is that, is that a fair kind of um, you know, schedule to follow? Is that what happens next? 
because I'm waiting for that that pause where I'm waiting. I'm seeing we're seeing the enabling operations here. We're seeing shaping there. We see the Ukrainians move, you know, shake out in a certain direction. They're orient they're, they're orienting their forces. I'm imagining mm-hmm. um, is is when that deep battle stops. Is that is that go time? Is that H hour? Uh, the deep battle never stops, um, and sometimes it's done for operations you decide not to conduct, and sometimes it's done for operations which you do decide to conduct. You know, my my sense is. Ukrainians have been very clever with their um, operational level deception in this war. Um, They'll be doing stuff all over the place. Um, And they're where the best opportunity is. It's where they'll exploit that uh, shaping the battlefield. You know, every time they undertake an operation like they did in Kherson, that forces the Russians to react, which then uncovers other potential opportunities for the Ukrainians to exploit that wouldn't have been available if they hadn't attacked in Kherson, for example. So, you know, I, I think shaping, if you see the end of shaping, that's the end of the war, really. Shaping is always going on. You're always collecting information and you're constantly looking for opportunities. Uh, and sometimes opportunities only have narrow windows and an opportunity might open up and you go, oh, I wish I could do this, but you just don't have the forces available or the fires or the air or the logistics to exploit it, and the window can close. And I'd say that's happened multiple times in this war because it's happened in every other war in history. Um, so I don't think it will give us uh, the clues about what might happen next to the degree that we would like sometimes. Fair enough. I guess that's true because we saw, we saw it. Well, it's true. We saw it in Harrison that deep battle going pretty crazy, and then they reoriented and went to Kharkiv because they had been greener pastures over yeah. there. Makes sense. Yeah. All right, let's go to Colby, Allen, and M. Go ahead, Colby. Thanks, Yehuda. Uh, thanks, General Ryan. I'm wondering um, if Russia is able to slow things down over the winter and uh, maintain uh, their their front and their lines in some sort of, uh, you know, functional state and there isn't a complete collapse, what do you think of the prospects of in the in the spring once they've had more time to get the mobilization, uh, you know, completed and all the the troops trained up that they might be able to attempt to uh, regain the strategic initiative and go back on the offensive? Yeah, I think certainly the the Ukrainians have seized the initiative in this war at, at pretty much every level. Um, you know, at no level uh, is Russia able to dictate what happens. Um, other than with some of its strategic strikes using drones and, and missiles. Um, I think for, you know, the next three to four months, uh, the Russians are not going to be able to change that. Um, they're just going to hold on. Uh, they're just going to want to retain as much of the ter- territory they've already taken. You know, they still own 17% of the Ukraine, uh, which the Ukrainians are going to have to capture at some point. Um, and they'll be backfilling a lot of units that have taken horrendous casualties. Um, and even though we've seen uh, mobilised troops already appear in places in Ukraine, the larger proportion of them are actually backfilling units uh, that aren't on the front line, that are being reconstituted. And, you know, uh, my sense is we will see them uh, undertake offensive operations in the spring. Um, you know, my sense is Donetsk is probably a likely location. 
But we, you know, we could see if they're able to keep the west bank of the Dnieper. I'm not saying they will, but if they could, you know, another move out towards Odessa. Uh, we could see other stuff in Kharkiv. I mean, clearly it's easier for the Russians to mount offensive operations out of Russia proper into Kharkiv and, and other areas. So, you know, there's a whole lot of potential uh, Russian opportunities that the Ukrainian high command will be thinking about. And that's before we start getting into the consideration of Belarus and what might eventuate out of there. Now, I think uh, Belarus has shown no inclination to become a belligerent in this war. Um, and the Russians don't really have uh, a large enough force to really do anything other than fix some Ukrainian forces in the northern part of Ukraine. Um, so the Russians will have options. Uh, Sorovkin will already be planning 2023. Um, you know, as much as he's a monster and a brutal butcher, uh, both here and Syria, he is also a military professional and will be thinking about his 2023 campaign. And he'll be weighing all these options because in spring he'll have a lot of pressure on him politically to not just hold ground but to make progress in this war. So, you know, I think it's a near certainty we'll see Russian offensive operations in early 2023. It's just where and how early we see them. And he might, he might have an extra 100,000, 200,000 better trained troops by then. But, yeah, you know, at least that. Um, you know, better is uh, <laughs> a fairly relative term, uh, particularly with what we've seen of the Russians so far. Uh, but, you know, uh, still 100,000 uh, troops is 100,000 troops, and that, you know, can make a difference sometimes. Fair enough. All right, let's go to Alan M. and then Chuck. Chuck's here, so he, he, he wants to uh, pick your brain. Go ahead, Alan, and then M. Uh, thanks, Yehuda, and thanks, General Ryan. In a way, given what you just uh, reflected on, looking ahead to spring 2023, if you were a Ukrainian war planner, would you undertake a winter offensive? And if your answer is yes, where would you aim it? Luhansk and Donetsk? Or if your operations in Kherson are successful now, would that make Crimea ripe for the taking? Um, first, I have a policy of not telegraphing what I think are good ideas for the Ukrainian high command, so I won't talk about that. Uh, but I have written that I do believe uh, the winter is a period of opportunity for the Ukrainians. Um, you are seeing a large-scale um, relief in place, shift out of Russian units for mobilised troops. Um, you are seeing the Russians who now have a largely defensive mindset, whereas Ukrainians have an offensive mindset and their morale's high. So my sense is we may see another Ukrainian offensive before the end of the year. Uh, I think there are multiple locations where we could see that in Ukraine um, without me telegraphing that. Um, you know, they have the initiative. Uh, they have momentum. And one thing as a commander when you have momentum is you don't want to waste it. You want to continue using it. For as long as you possibly can. My sense is the Ukrainians are pretty clever uh, understanding that. It's just where they decide to um, utilise um, the advantages that they've generated uh, over the coming months. But certainly 
uh, winter is not going to be a period of no tempo. It'll just be lower tempo than some other periods we've seen in the war. Excellent. All right, uh, go to M and then Chuck. Sir, we often get the question about what to prioritize, giving Ukrainians offensive capabilities or sending them defensive capabilities that increases uh, their chances of carrying out successful uh, force protection uh, and civil infrastructure protection missions. Mm. Uh, everyone wants to give Ukrainians everything they can, uh, uh, battlefield, uh, uh, main battlefield tanks, attack helicopters, uh, long-range uh, or medium-range rockets. But some analysts argue that in order also to avoid escalation and to focus on protecting more assets and protecting the civilian population centers and therefore boosting morales of, of Ukrainians and increasing their already high rate of interceptions, that we should prioritize providing them with defensive equipment. Uh, any thoughts on that, sir? Yeah, no, absolutely. I have very strong views on this. Um, we should prioritize what the Ukrainians tell us are their priorities. End of story. Um, there is no European uh, politician or military leader who knows Ukraine's priorities better than Ukraine does. And we just keep second guessing it. I and mean, it's just stupid what I hear out of the mouths of some analysts and politicians about what the Ukrainians need. Um, you know, the Defence Minister, uh, the President, and others have been very clear about their priorities for a very long time. Uh, you know, I met with Zelensky and he was very clear and they've been the same priorities for a very long time. <laughs> you know, closing the skies has been their number one priority all the way through. Um, and yes, they have a high interception rate, um, but it's still not high enough. And you run out of ammunition pretty quickly when you're doing lots of intercepts. So that will remain an enduring priority. And there's a few um, imperatives for this. Clearly, uh, for Zelensky, the humanitarian imperative, he wants to protect his people. He doesn't like to see his people die. Uh, no good leader does. So, I mean, there's that imperative. Um, you know, a, a second imperative is he needs to keep power and water on, not just for his people, but for industry that's supporting the war effort and is generating revenue. Um, and third, he needs to have an environment where Western financiers and investors are happy to come to Ukraine and invest because Ukraine needs it. So, you know, air defence, counter-drone defences are, you know, their number one priority and will remain that way. Um, you know, priorities two and three have been, um, you know, armoured vehicles and artillery, including the support, the ammunition, the training that goes behind them. Um, because the best way to end this war is to take their country back and kill as many Russians as possible. Um, and that's not escalatory. That's just killing people who have invaded your country and murdered your citizens. I mean, uh, the UN allows you to do that quite clearly. Um, so I think the big thing is, is a bunch of politicians need to stop posturing about what they think Ukraine needs, because most of them are clueless about what even their own country needs, um, and just go with what the Ukrainians have told us they need. Uh, the Ukrainians have proven to be able to absorb Western, highly advanced Western capabilities extraordinarily quickly. I mean, if you have a look at HIMARS, um, you know, people go, oh, yeah, just fires rockets. No, it's a whole system. There's a targeting system. 
There's a prioritisation, there's an air management system, there's an ammunition management system that uh, underpins HIMARS, and that's just the, you know, the, the 80 kilometre uh, version, not the ATACMS. And they were able to do this in weeks. Uh, my country, I wrote the requirement for HIMARS back in 2013, we still don't have our first launcher. So, you know, we've constantly underestimated the Ukrainian capacity to absorb and use sophisticated Western equipment. Um, we need to trust them. We need to trust their priorities. And we, we need to stop this idiotic political posturing about what we think they need. Just go with what they think they need. You know, Thank you so funny, much. We had, thanks, Sam. We had CJ here. As, as you know, he's an artillery captain, and he... Uh, and he was saying that watching them use it on triple seven, it was faster than they than they were using it back at battalion. Mm. So uh, shocking all around, really. Well, there's good reasons for that. I mean, the detection to destruction time is three to five minutes. Um, it's pretty hard to move a triple seven battery that quickly. So they've got to be faster. <laughs> and uh, welcome to Chuck Farah, you know, everyone's favorite uh, neighborhood <coughs> team SEAL team six friend of ours. Welcome, Chuck. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. General, hey, Chuck. I've been uh, listening in rapt attention and uh, really, uh, I, I am always uh, impressed when somebody is speaking complete sense and it's been great to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, you were, we were talking about uh, uh, the Russian uh, adding, adding manpower. And uh, looking at uh, pouring over sources today, there are several, uh, several fronts on which the Russians have uh, started, uh, continued these sort of piecemeal attacks. Uh, none of them, I think, are, are greater than company size, maybe even platoon size. Uh, for example, against Bakhmut and uh, against uh, Marinka, a couple other places. Uh, I, I've also noticed that over the last three or four days, the Russians are averaging almost a thousand KIA a day. Uh, I wonder if you you see any any correlation between the the training level and the quality of the people they're feeding into the battle. Uh, you know, is that in, individual soldiering skills, which I think is probably part of it? Is it is it bad tactical decisions handed down from the top? Is it uh, the inability to put together basic infantry skills? Or uh, what, what do you see as uh, sort of causing these, you know, lack of progress and, and surge in casualties? Um, I think there's a few things here. I know I've spoken uh, briefly about uh, we should be sceptical about casualty numbers always. Um, you know, historically, during war, we've always got them wrong for the enemy. So we need to be very careful about, um, you know, the numbers we're seeing. Uh, my, my sense is they're generally about half of what we see. Um, and that has been the experience through multiple wars. But that said, they are taking, they still are taking heavy, heavy casualties. I think there's a few different reasons for this. Firstly, I think, um, you know, uh, they are still trying to conduct offensive operations against an army that has become very, very good at defensive operations, you know, defence in depth and attacking um, an adversary at multiple layers and depths on the battlefield. Um, and, you know, when the asymmetry in artillery has been um, 
addressed as it has by the Ukrainians over the last few months, that can become very expensive. I mean, artillery in the 20th century was always the biggest killer in you know World War One, World War Two, and it appears to be in Ukraine at the moment. That's the uh, evidence we're seeing from multiple sources, including from senior Ukrainian and, and Russian commanders. So I think, you know, it's pretty hard to conduct defensive operations against uh, an army that's pretty good at defensive operations. Secondly, it's really hard to conduct defensive operations when you're doing it dismounted instead of with armoured vehicles. Um, you know, tanks save lives. Armoured vehicles save lives. You can move more quickly. You can carry heavier weapon systems and you can network better with the communication systems that are inherent in, in armoured vehicles. Uh, a third thing, clearly, is we are seeing a lot of these attacks undertaken by forces that aren't that well trained, certainly not compared to what we would expect in the West. Uh, and the hardest thing to train people for is offensive operations. It's extraordinarily difficult. You know, for those of us who've done dry and live uh, battle group and above level uh, attacks, um, on exercises or, or, you know, done stuff on operations. It's extraordinarily difficult to do. Uh, and they don't appear to have either the leaders or, or the soldiers who are capable of doing this. Um, and that's probably only going to get worse over the coming six months. So I think it's, you know, it's a complex interplay of different reasons. Uh, that doesn't help the Russians, uh, frankly, because they're probably going to keep taking casualties. And as things cool down, their problems only get worse with levels of support, um, inability to uh, conduct good camouflage and, and deception operations and, and these kind of things, as well as um, non-combat casualties will skyrocket. May I just chip something in there for, for you, Chuck, because I think this is exactly the line with, of questions which are important. Um, General Ryan, you had a conversation evidently in public with Michael Kaufman about this and it went back and forth on various threads but he had highlighted that there is a possibility that the Russian force reconstitution could continue over the winter whilst they're hmm. throwing people with little training so to say at the front now but he still believes that there might be a risk to yep. A, do you believe that this is a real risk and if so how could the Ukrainian armed forces uh, prevent that from having a significant impact in what is then the spring mud season. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I agree. This is this relief in place I talk about. I mean, we're already seeing the flow in of mobilised troops, um, and I think we'll continue to see that. Um, you know, it makes sense for the Russians just to throw people at the problem at the moment because they have lots of people. They have people to spare. I mean, this is a country that has a mobilisation base of probably. 20 to 30 million troops, so 100,000 here or there isn't a big deal for them, um, certainly not in the mind of Putin when it comes to lose 100,000 or lose the war. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with Michael. We are going to see the infill of mobilised troops over winter. It just makes sense to undertake that relief in place over winter, get them familiar with the ground, keep the ground. Um, in preparation for whatever comes next next spring, that Sorovkin may be uh, that Sorovkin may be planning. What do you think the Ukrainian armed force can do to interdict or interrupt or impair that? Oh, I, I mean, without giving away the game, yeah. but what, generally, uh, how how should they do it? Well, they should be targeting uh, locations where 
reinforcement troops are held before they sent forward. Um, you know, the you know the way reinforcements are coordinated in every army is they generally go to a central depot and then they go from there. Well, you find the central depot when you hit it with high margin, you kill as many as you possibly can, um, and that has lots of different impacts. One, it kills mobilised troops, which is a good thing. Um, two, for the troops at the front line who are expecting reinforcements and don't get them, that has an impact on their morale. And it also keeps the front line uh, at a lower dense force density than the Russians would like, and the Ukrainians might be able to exploit that. So, you know, firstly, you've, you've got to target uh, the reinforcement depots. But there's also the psychological fight, right? And the strategic influence campaign from the Ukrainians in the West is really important. Firstly, you know, the Ukrainians are offering mobilised troops an easy surrender, you know, hot food and be treated well. And they're doing that through uh, posters and social media and videos of captured mobics and those kind of things. Um, so, you know, I, I think both the physical and the psychological are areas that should be uh, targeted when it comes to trying to weaken the impact of Russia's mobilised troops. Hmm. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, Axel, go ahead. Uh, I was just about to append a question because uh, with Chuck, we had discussed over the past weeks uh, more and more what happens on the northern front line. And um, both you as well as Martha Kaufman seemingly has, have looked at this. Uh, Yehuda has been so kind as to highlight this from the very beginning that Trotsky Svatova, Kremina, seems to be a line which the Russians are not willing to sacrifice. Mm. They are trying to, you know, hold it at the moment. They are throwing unskilled troops there. Uh, they are wasting them, as you just highlighted as well. But what happens if they can't hold it? Is that the kind of breakthrough which actually makes um, significantly harder for them to build up these entrenchments and hold the line until they can relieve, create relief in place? Yeah, it is it is important. I mean, they've got two railway lines running, one through Kamina and one a little bit further to the east. And these are critical to supporting their operations in Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, so, you know, it's important from a tactical and operational perspective that they protect the supply lines. Secondly, you know, there's a political imperative uh, to hold Luhansk because it's one of the provinces that were uh, that was annexed uh, back in September by Putin. So, you know, he, he wants to lose as little as possible of them. Um, so, you know, he has a political problem if the Ukrainians keep taking back Luhansk or Blast. Uh, but there's another political imperative here, which is keep the Ukrainians away from the Russian border. Um, Putin doesn't want panic from Russian border cities. We're already seeing a little bit of that, but he doesn't want that because uh, people look at him going, well, you know, you're not winning the war in Ukraine and now our own soil is being threatened. Um, so, you know, he has a few challenges. Uh, there's a tactical issue here, but, you know, uh, I think the political problem of holding that line in Luhansk is fairly significant for Putin. Uh, and he can't afford to take too many steps back, certainly in, in this area here. Um. I don't know how much time you have, General Ryan, so I want to be respectful. Yeah, I've probably got another... Uh, sorry, I've got another five minutes to say. No worries at all. Perfect. I just wanted to ask. And actually, it's funny what you mentioned there. Uh, that, that that white paper I was talking about uh, was written, actually, uh, which is about um, the maintenance of, uh, of a Ukrainian system, the whole CSS plan. That's, uh, if you recall the name of the, one of the people I just sent you, that's the document I wanted to send to you, actually, right. okay. when we were talking about supply. 
I would love to get your, well, they, they've even asked for your, even Colonel, like, uh, I think we were talking about it. So if you, if there is a way I can send yeah, no, you, let I'll, me know. Uh, I'll drop you a note I'd with my email address. I'm not going to yeah. advertise it on I'd this love, means. I'd, I'd love to pick your brain. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. But um, the idea is to give the Ukrainians the ability to train the trainers in the maintain, in the maintainer sense. Yeah. Somewhere where you have this huge integration of all of this foreign equipment mm. that can be properly logged by NATO standards. Yeah can be um, maintained, can be serviced or stored, depending on what it could, it could be even for civil defense. It could even be uh, how much of a game changer do you think that kind of system? You know, I know the Ukrainians have been making it work, but surely they were unprepared as who would be uh, that have the whole world send them all sorts of varying disparate equipment mm -hmm. and they have to use it in unison. And the, the one simple example is the fire control systems and all this artillery. Yeah. All right. Everyone's using different software. Yep. Everyone's using different interfaces and, and, and you can't really properly utilize it to its greatest effectiveness without that integration so um is that is that a game changer for the ukrainians and, and that, that's a, that's a long that's a long battle right that's a five ten year just to ensure their survival after this uh, eventual win we suppose yeah no i think it's extraordinarily important i mean um we've seen the ukrainians start their shift to a western approach with weapons uh, and that's had to be accompanied by a shift towards Western um, approaches towards logistics, which are clearly, as we've seen from this war, very, very different to Russian ones, as people like Trent Tolinko and, and other logistics experts have pointed out throughout the war in a, in a really in a really magnificent way. Um, I mean, I remember Australians set up the Iraqi Army uh, Service Support Institute um, in the mid early 2000s, just north of Baghdad, and the Iraqis loved it uh, because they were being taught logistics on a shoestring, um, which is the Australian, British, pretty much the way everyone else does logistics except the US. And we probably need something similar that uh, you know fosters that transition to standard NATO logistics, but in a way that's affordable, um, because even though the US provides huge amounts of support. No one in the world can do logistics like the US, right? None of us could afford that. You know, we need a kind of NATO standard logistics system that would be recognisable, that can plug in to the Americans, but probably scaled like Canada or Britain or, or France or, or Poland or someone like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think the medium term, that has to be a really important focal point for the Ukrainians and the NATO assistance missions, um, because Ukraine will be, if not a NATO member, it'll be a standard NATO military. And all the STANAGs and all the kind of systems in place that NATO members uh, generally, not always, but generally adhere to, will be very important for Ukraine. And, you know, in 2023, they almost need to be a NATO army in some respects. Uh, it's not going to be that but they certainly need to be well on the way to their transition to it because, the, you know, a lot of Soviet ammunition and Soviet equipment have been used up and destroyed um, and the only source of equipment and munitions and support for them moving forward is NATO members. Fair enough. I guess, OK, last question is going to be an engineering one. Uh, I would have asked the first because it's such an interesting one for us. Uh, we, we often see obstacles on the, you know, on, the, on, on my level, you, you see them on divisional and up, mm. um, but we've seen them do these dragon's teeth that look remarkably small compared to what yeah. what the tanks can do. And this two, you know, when we look at World War II defenses, we see obstacle belts that are, you know, two, three, four hundred meters deep. 
um, you know, varied uh, placement of these dragon's teeth with barbed wire or Constantino wire with, with uh, tank ditches. And then you see this strange, almost childlike defend, uh, obstacle that the Russians put in the north of uh, Donetsk. Um, you could even drive a, a, a BMP, an, an APC, or an IFV almost through it. Mm. Um, it, it, it. I thought, well, maybe this is just the beginning of the belt. <laughs> it looks as though they've, that's it. Uh, how, how odd is that obstacle? As an engineer, you're looking at that. I mean, who are they stop? Who do they think they're stopping? And it's not even covered by fire. Yeah, no, it's, What's the it's, of this? Uh, it's a joke. Uh, tactically and doesn't serve any purpose. Um, uh, I saw that purely as a political pay by the Wagner group uh, to, I mean, they were very good at letting people take photos of it, and that's, that should have clued us into the real purpose of this. I mean, that, that's not going to stop anything. Um, uh, it was all about Wagner group saying to the Russian people and to influencers in Moscow that, hey, we're doing stuff to defend the motherland, important strategic message, uh, and defend the bits of Ukraine that have been taken that the Russian army isn't capable of doing. So that was more uh, strategic comms around the power play that's going on between the military and Wagner Group in Moscow at the moment. Uh, you're right, all the basics of obstacle design, you know, you, you try and build obstacles that enhance then enhance natural obstacles, and it clearly didn't do that. You have mixed means in obstacles, both physical, mines, a whole range of things that didn't have that. And you cover it by observation and fire, which didn't appear to be the case there. So this was a political obstacle belt. Uh, it certainly wasn't a realistic tactical obstacle for any first world army, that's for sure. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time, Joe Ryan. And please do, I should have said retweet the space so more, but we get so wrapped up talking to you because I'm, uh, I'm getting answers from my course off you, so I hope you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> no worries at all. For, for the audience, if you do mind, if you haven't followed Mick Ryan, please do. Uh, he is a, a, a friend of the space, a strategist, leader, and author, uh, and obviously a retired uh, major general from the Australian Army. Please do give him a follow. Um, and he won't be traveling to Russia soon because he's been banned. He must be very sad about that. I was very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so please do retweet the space. And if you can, if you're in the position to, uh, ironically, uh, the head of Maria Aid is an engineer officer as well. And she's quite uh, closely uh, integrated or knows intimately the uh, engineers in Ukraine. And they've also been providing specialized uh, uh, hook and line kits and certain all sorts of cool engineer stuff, uh, custom order for the uh, Ukrainians. So uh, definitely uh, give them a visit. And if you can help, uh, they have a signature drone program. If you're in the position to uh, donate, uh, just go to mariaid.org. Remember that they are 100% volunteer organization. They have no admin costs. There's no, they pay to be involved. So every dollar sent to them is a dollar spent on the Ukraine, on the Ukrainian uh, military requirements and needs. So once again, General Ryan, thank you so very much for being here, and I hope to see you soon, and have a great rest of your day. No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, wish everyone the best, and uh, glory to Ukraine.